Welcome to Crimes and Witch Demeanors, the paranormal podcast where we go beyond the Wikipedia page and delve into historic sources to find the truth behind your favorite ghostly tales. I'm your host and lovable librarian, Joshua Spellman. Today we have a very exciting story filled to the brim with historic figures, scandal, murder. Like this story has Queen Victoria, Wyatt Earp, and Thomas Edison. Like it's insane. But somehow even historical heavy hitters like Edison and Earp, they can't even hold a candle to today's ghost story. It's a pretty crazy one. It's pretty crazy. And some of the newspapers from this story are really gorgeous. So if you don't already follow the podcast Instagram, I implore you to do that at Crimes and Witch Demeanors. And also just a big thank you to everyone who purchased some merch from the merch shop. You are true bibliographers. That's going all towards my resources for actually being able to find like these historic papers, census records, things like that. And if you want to support the podcast and you haven't already, the link is going to be in the description. But anyways, you're not here for me to hawk my wares. You're here for salacious historic scandals. And boy, do I have that for you, along with the haunts that have come from it. So put on your sunnies and grab a parasol because we are headed to the Victorian and also the progressive era in Santa Cruz, California to learn the legend behind the Golden Gate Villa and the horrible tragedy that transpired there. Considered one of the most historically significant homes in all of California, Golden Gate Villa is perched atop Santa Cruz's historic Beach Hill neighborhood. Its face is painted a buttery gold with bright orchid trim, cheerful colors that belie its dark and twisted past. Major Frank McLaughlin was born sometime around 1840. During his early career, he served on the police force in Newark, New Jersey, and developed a lifelong friendship with the esteemed inventor, Thomas Edison. McLaughlin fought with Union forces briefly during the Civil War, but his stint was short, and it's unlikely that this is where he earned his military title. Instead, it's believed he achieved this title from his later activity with the California State Militia. McLaughlin became an engineer on the Pacific Railroad, helping to lay tracks across the plains and the new frontier. In the Wild West, he earned quite the reputation, known as one of the quickest men on the frontier, and was one of only a handful of men to ever challenge and survive an encounter with the outlaw Wyatt Earp. In 1877, McLaughlin returned to the East Coast, where he began to court a New Jersey widow by the name of Margaret Loomis. During this period, Thomas Edison was developing the incandescent light bulb, but ran into trouble trying to find a dependable source for platinum to use as filaments. Without this precious metal, he would not be able to market his invention to the masses. McLaughlin suggested to Edison that he source platinum from the Feather River Valley in California, as he heard that there was a major find there. And upon the suggestion, Edison commissioned McLaughlin to head out west and prospect for the mineral. But before he did so, Major Frank McLaughlin married Margaret Loomis and adopted her three-year-old daughter, Agnes. In California, like most of his endeavors, McLaughlin went all in. It was said that he never settled for the petite when the mammoth was available, and his exploits in Butte County were no exception. 
He soon earned the title King of Feather for his domination of the river where his sights quickly turned from platinum to gold. It wasn't long before the major began to make a fortune, but he was smart that he would never invest his own money. Instead, he would organize companies where he would pay himself a large salary. It was during his time at Feather that McLaughlin commissioned San Francisco architect Thomas J. Welsh to design a home for Margaret and Agnes to escape the brutal summer heat. McLaughlin instructed Welsh to spare no expense in making Golden Gate Villa the showplace of Santa Cruz. And that he did. The mansion was named after the major's mining organization, Golden Gate Mining Company, which managed the operations back in Feather and provided all the funds for his lavish home. Naturally, being friends with Thomas Edison, the home was outfitted with the newest luxury available, electricity. The home was magnificent, and the McLaughlins hosted many events, including costume parties, magic shows, musicals, fireworks displays, and the first moving picture ever shown in Santa Cruz. Agnes became a figure of note in the local community and was pronounced indescribably pretty, a petite beauty with rose-leaf complexion, and as the ideal American girl by a number of publications. Perhaps because of this, it's no wonder that the focal piece of the Golden Gate Villa is a gigantic stained-glass portrait of a young woman reaching to pick an apple blossom branch, modeled after none other than Agnes herself. It was rumored that Major McLaughlin cut some of Agnes's hair to be mixed in with the color of the glass. Despite Agnes's earthly beauty and love of parties and extravagance, she regularly attended mass with her dog, who she often doused with expensive cologne. Despite how beautiful and popular she was, Agnes never married, though she almost did once. She was engaged to a man by the name of Sam Rucker, and while the invitations to the ceremony were sent, nothing ever came of it. While the McLaughlin women lived in luxury in Santa Cruz, the major was busy with various endeavors, from olive orchards to orange groves to a nine-mile tunnel at Big Bend, a 30-mile flume for the hydraulic mine, funding development in the area, McLaughlin was quickly amassing a fortune. However, his biggest endeavor was to divert the water of the feather so that gold could be mined from the riverbed. Receiving letters of recommendation from Thomas Edison, the governor, and two California state senators, McLaughlin traveled to London, England to try and secure investors. Now, he was incredibly charming, as usual, and made such an impression that the local newspapers in London declared that not since Benjamin Franklin had an American made such an impression on English society. McLaughlin seemed to have luck in all of his projects, and this trip was no different. Due to a misunderstanding, he came home with $12 million in funds, a great deal more than he ever imagined to get. Sadly, the project itself would not see the same luck. It took over four years to complete, but resulted in a 7,000-foot-long canal and a retaining wall 12 feet wide and 20 feet high. It was heralded as one of the greatest mining feats of the era, and Thomas Edison, McLaughlin's good old chum, provided the first electric lights ever to be used on a construction site, as the workers labored all night and all day. After its completion, when the water was successively diverted and the riverbed was dry, McLaughlin was the first to take a shovel to the dirt. While he struck gold in London with his investors, much like the river, this project would soon run dry. The major was sure that he would make a $100 million return on the initial $12 million invested, 
but instead of hitting gold, he hit bankruptcy. All they managed to find were small gold nuggets, old rusty picks, and broken buckets. It turns out that McLaughlin was 50 years too late. Half a century earlier, 49ers diverted the same river with a simple wooden flume and exhausted all the gold in the area, walking away with their own fortune and leaving nothing for the major. Now, the locals in the area were well aware of this, and they knew that McLaughlin's project was doomed from the start. But they decided to keep their mouth shut and watch the outsider go down in flames. But, like his previous projects, McLaughlin declined to invest any of his own money in Feather. And upon learning this, the English investors were furious. It turns out that McLaughlin had lost no money at all and was paying himself a generous salary. Queen Victoria herself launched an investigation and sent Scotland Yard to investigate. However, when the agent arrived, he was scared off by McLaughlin, who wasn't afraid to wave his pistol about. He was the man who survived an encounter with Wyatt Earp. A timid Englishman was nothing to him. After this failure, McLaughlin got into politics, earning quite the reputation as a staunch frontiersman and capitalist. Though he never held office himself, he did become chair of California's Republican State Central Committee during the 1896 presidential campaign, and the major was credited with carrying the whole state for McKinley. He did so much that McLaughlin was offered a seat in McKinley's cabinet, though he did decline, just as he declined to run for governor despite the pleas of the people. Though all good things do come to an end, and Mrs. Margaret McLaughlin died on November 16, 1905, turning Frank into a widower and leaving her daughter, Agnes, behind. On that same date, two years later in 1907, Agnes attended an early morning mass in memory of her mother. Upon returning home, Agnes retired to her bedroom in the tower to take a small nap. But while she slept, someone entered the room unnoticed, pressed a 44 caliber pistol to her temple, and fired. Knowing that his stepdaughter was sleeping, Major Frank McLaughlin set their maid out on an errand before going upstairs and murdering his beloved stepdaughter. Shortly after the deed was done, McLaughlin called his banker and friend, William Jeter, and urged him to come to the home immediately. At the time, Jeter was preoccupied and declined to come. But McLaughlin insisted, shouting, You must come at once. I have just killed my Bob, and I'm going to kill myself. And he did. He ingested a fatal dose of potassium cyanide, dying just as his friend arrived. To everyone's shock, Agnes survived, at least for the time being. While she survived the initial assault at the hands of the major, she succumbed to her injuries at 6.30 that evening. Newspapers published salacious headlines for weeks that ran alongside the obituary that McLaughlin had penned himself. The tragedy was naturally a hit with the media, being full of scandal and intrigue as it was. McLaughlin, for the most part, was an incredibly popular and well-liked man, and the thought of this crime was nearly inconceivable. Why? How on earth could he do such a thing? But you see, this was not a random act of violence or a crime of passion. It was not executed on a whim. No. The major had been meticulously planning the deed for months, which he outlined in the documents he left for Jeter, including farewell letters to friends and family, instructions for his estate, and an explanation for his crime. It turns out that McLaughlin was beginning to suffer financially, though he kept it hidden from everyone. 
The major feared falling into poverty and being unable to provide for his stepdaughter that he loved so dearly. He wrote in his letter, To leave my darling child helpless and penniless would be unnatural, and so I take her with me to our loved one. She is the very last one who could face this world alone. However, at the inquest, it was revealed Frank McLaughlin could have liquidated his estate and had a large surplus to spare, hardly leaving him or Agnes impoverished. Some supposed he was simply embarrassed by his failure at Feather River, his reputation absolutely shattered by the incident. However, no rationalization could really explain why he did what he did. Well, not until the whispers around Santa Cruz gave wind to a new theory. Many thought it strange that after Mrs. McLaughlin's death, that Agnes continued to live with the Major, since she was not of blood relation. The fact that she had remained unmarried well into her 30s also didn't quite sit right with the local community. In fact, they could all recall that many years prior, announcements of Agnes's marriage to Sam Rucker were sent out, but that the wedding was canceled at the very last moment presumably because the Major couldn't bear to see her married to another man. It turns out that over the years, Agnes and Sam remained engaged. However, Agnes couldn't bear to marry so soon after her mother's death. This casts doubt on the motive of Major McLaughlin, seeing as his daughter would be taken care of by her fiancé, the ex-mayor of San Jose. As these rumors swirled about, a man by the name of Christian R. Walters a prosperous merchant in the city, stepped forward, claiming that he was secretly engaged to Agnes at the time of her murder, which made it even harder to believe that Major Frank McLaughlin couldn't stand to see his stepdaughter fall into poverty when she would be well provided for by her wealthy would-be husband, or husbands, if this second mysterious fiancé was to be believed. Now, Regardless of his motivations, whether the Major was truly in love with his stepdaughter, or whether he could just not stand the idea of aging alone in the villa without a family, in a letter to the family doctor, F.E. Morgan, McLaughlin wrote, Please see that we are not cut up, at least that my pure sweet child is not. And on the outside of the envelope, he had written, Dear Doc, please do me one last favor and chloroform our old cat so it does seem that he wanted to take his whole family with him beyond the veil. But so the mystery remains. Inside the confines of the shining Golden Gate Villa, the spirits of the McLaughlins remain. Now, if only they could divulge their secrets to the living. I don't know about you, but I love that story. It has everything. A family tragedy, a murder-suicide, Queen Victoria, Wyatt Earp, and Thomas Edison, like, and a beautiful house. Like, what more could you ask for? This is one of the few cases where everything I told you was 100% true. I got a lot of my information from two major sources, one being an article on the November 17, 1907 issue of the San Francisco Daily Call titled Frank McLaughlin Kills Daughter and Himself at Santa Cruz, 
which is an incredibly detailed article, but I did want to note that article next to it has a really interesting juxtaposition. The story right next to it, little tiny story, is called Suicide Ends Happy Love Affair of Girl Takes Poison When Her Father Refuses to Consent to Her Wedding, which is such a similar situation to the McLaughlins. It only had a tiny little blurb, again, not as salacious because of it wasn't this major public figure. But nonetheless, I found it interesting that these two articles were side by side and they ended so differently, yet I guess so similarly as well. I don't know. But the rest of my information, or at least the source that I used to find my historic sources, was by a lifesaver of a librarian or historian from the Santa Cruz Public Library's local history department by the name of Susan Dormanin. Thank you, Susan. Your article was great. There wasn't a lot online, just in terms of even like a story for Golden Gate Villa. There were no other podcasts or anything. So your piece was very helpful. And like any other great librarian, Susan had an endless supply of footnotes for me to follow so I can find better primary sources to really get the story. So while I have nothing to disprove, I did want to share just some fun newspaper articles about Major McLaughlin's life specifically his encounter with Wyatt Earp. Now, this was published after his death. Uh, No doubt the papers were still riding the coattails of the tragedy, and I guess it kind of makes sense it was published after his death because before he died, there was no reason for any of this to ever come out and be published. So people were kind of remembering the major and telling their stories about his crazy life. So here's the story of his encounter with Wyatt Earp in a headline titled, Always a Foe of Earp. Major McLaughlin was unsparing in his denunciations of the rascality of Wyatt Earp, and it was said up and down Market Street that Earp had vowed to shoot McLaughlin on sight. When the two encountered one another at Johnny Farley's peerless saloon, Earp and the little major had a staring match for a thrilling instant in which the petulant pop of the pistol was expected by all. But the Arizona gunman saw that he could not intimidate through many a gunplay on the western frontier. And so he said with the tone smacking something of an apology, I know, Major McLaughlin, that you would not have made such remarks unless you believed them to be true. And he left the saloon, while the man he was supposed to kill on sight took his time over his drink, uttered a few jocular remarks for the benefit of the bystanders, and went on his own way with a nerve seemingly shaken, not at all. Now, I love this story because it's a little bit anticlimactic, but it really illustrates the personality of Major McLaughlin. He is unshakable. Like, no matter what comes at him, he is firm in his beliefs, and he's just not nervous because he just knows his luck is going to bring him out on top. Well, we know that didn't always work out for him, but for the most part, it did. But I think it's also really interesting that alongside this, like, unshakable personality, this persona, this stoic face he puts on, this macho man facade, that there's this really soft spot that he has for Agnes, his stepdaughter. Now, whether those uh, feelings are acceptable or not, I I think it depends if you listen to the gossip or, I don't know, it's hard to say, but regardless, he clearly had a soft side. So this next story is during his time in politics, and I think it's just so interesting to put this next story up against how he treated Agnes and also his cat. Like, let's not forget that he didn't even want his cat to be left alone. He was like, kill the cat too. I'm not for cat murder, but I mean, the man clearly wanted to drag everyone with him to the grave. 
or he didn't want them to live a life without him because maybe he thought he was just that important. I don't know. I digress. After this next article, we'll talk about the paranormal activity. So this article is titled, No Fear of a Bad Gun. There was never any doubt of his physical courage or his willingness to accept a challenge from any bad gunman. When he was managing the campaign of D.M. Burns for the United States Senate, there were many threats that he would be killed. And one day in the corridor of the Golden Eagle Hotel in Sacramento, he met Major Goucher of San Diego, who was supposed to have a particular grudge against him. Major McLaughlin calmly spat in General Goucher's face and pushed him with his left hand. Goucher made no effort to resent the insult, and afterwards said, I was too wise to be taken in by that old frontier trick. He spat in my pistol eye and pushed me off with his left hand, so that he was free to draw on me with his right. So this not only shows McLaughlin's toughness, but also that he's smart. He, he uses his brain. Like, he has tricks. Like, his tricks of swindling his investors out of money while paying himself a salary that he can't lose. But all that said and done... He did commit a murder and killed himself in his home. And one would suppose that that would leave a dark psychic spot on the shining golden home that is the Golden State Villa. And the home has been rumored by many to be haunted, but never by anyone who actually lived in the home. So a former fashion model turned interior designer, Patricia Sambuck Wilder, ended up restoring the home and it resulted in the villa being entered into the National Registry of Historic Landmarks in 1975. Despite even uh, Patricia Wilder being born on Halloween, the first four years that she owned the house, she never even knew that this tragedy of a murder-suicide happened there. And for the rest of her time there, she never experienced anything. She even said, I've never seen an apparition. Not that it doesn't exist. I wouldn't challenge that. I do believe in energy, but this house has positive vibes, a very good energy, so whatever spiritual force is left from the McLaughlins is good. Now, Wilder isn't a skeptic. She wholeheartedly believes that there is good energy there, and she even claims that the otherworldly spirits that do exist in the home helped her choose the paint colors for the house. Patricia did recall that one time while she was giving a tour of the house, a man in the tour group asked her, have you ever seen a ghost? And, of course, she said that she never did, but another woman in the group scoffed a little bit and was like, they'd never show themselves to her. They wouldn't want to scare her. So maybe the ghosts are caring, and they have been there this whole time, picking out paint colors for the house. But they're just so courteous that they don't want to scare the owner. Wilder does claim that she would not have been scared because it would, quote, almost be an affirmation of the life beyond which I believe. Patricia Wilder's granddaughter, Chelsea Mosgrove, lived in the house her whole entire life. And she also turns her nose up at the notion that the house is haunted. She says, I've never seen or felt anything except a lot of love, which my grandmother has put into this house. And she goes on to talk about how she is a fantastic artist who's reupholstered all the old furniture and poured and mixed all the paint that goes in the house herself. So... That was disappointing. No ghosts there. So I went to Reddit. I went to TripAdvisor. I did find one post on Reddit, and this was the exchange. My friend used to live at Golden Gate Villa. It has an interesting history, and in my experience, some intense paranormal activity. 
finally. This is like what? The, the, the golden ticket for lack of a better phrase? So someone replied to that saying, oh, what was your experience? And uh, they never answered. So it's a mystery. We may never know. That Insert that TikTok sound there. Speaking of which, speaking of TikTok, I do have an idea for a new segment, little thing on my TikTok, where I'm going to dress up as my drag persona, antihistamine, and go to local haunted historic places here in Buffalo and kind of do like a mini version of my podcast, but like dragged up. I don't know. I think it could be fun. And if I do do it, I will be posting them probably not only on my TikTok, but also as reels on the podcast Instagram. So keep an eye out for those. Just another project that I can lay on top of myself that I don't have time to do. But that brings us to the end of today's episode. So I hope this wasn't as anticlimactic as that Reddit comment or the Wyatt Earp encounter. And I really hope you enjoyed this story because I sure did. It had a lot of twists and turns and Queen Victoria, Thomas Edison, and Wyatt Earp. Like, come on. Like, what more could you ask for in a story? So as always, please, if you listen on iTunes, leave us a five-star review. And if you listen on Overcast, hit that star to make me a star or whatever it does, because I still don't know. I still don't know. So until next time, don't swindle your investors by not investing any of your own money while paying yourself a handsome salary to build a mansion. Don't mix your stepdaughter's hair into your stained glass paint, but do mix your own paint colors suggested by your local ghost. And as always, stay spooky. Bye. 